Welcome to the Follow Your Flow podcast. This is episode number 14. It is estimated that period pain affects over 90% of women to varying degrees. And so often we think that this is just the way it is. As we discussed back in episode number 10 in great detail when I interviewed Elodie about her experience with period pain. In this episode, I'm talking to Henrietta Chang, a naturopath from New South Wales in Australia, where we discuss the impacts of food and lifestyle on how we experience period pain. And the impacts, as many of you listening would know, are very real. It's a very practical and very important conversation that I know will be of great support to many women, particularly those who think there really is no solution to what they're experiencing month in and month out. This episode just scratches the surface as there is so much to talk about when it comes to our relationship with food, but it is a necessary surface to scratch, so to speak, to start questioning our behaviours and how every choice we make affects us in some way. Henrietta and I will have much more to share on this in upcoming episodes, but for now, let's get clear on the science about why and how certain food groups can increase our experience of period pain. Please remember that the content and information on this podcast is for information purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. If you feel to change your approach to your healthcare plan, please make sure that you check in with your medical practitioner, medical professional. All right, let's head over to episode number 14 with Henrietta. listening to follow your flow your podcast on all things women's health menstruation and fertility your host fertility awareness educator women's health practitioner and lover of all things health and healing brings her wealth of experience along with the real experiences of women and the expertise of health professionals if you're looking for real and insightful conversations with real women, along with inspiring and lasting ways to improve your health, then you've come to the right place. Here's your host on Follow Your Flow, Sarah Harris. My guest on this episode is going to share her wealth of experience and expertise in nutrition and complementary medicine in relation to period pain. Henrietta Chang has been a naturopath and complementary medicine practitioner since 2001 and has a background in science with a keen interest in nutritional biochemistry. She combines her considerable knowledge and experience with an unwavering dedication and deep care for her clients and the wider community. She works closely with conventional medicine and also deeply values all that complementary medicine brings, knowing that a client's best outcomes are often based on a combination of both approaches. So without further ado, a very warm welcome to Henrietta. Beautiful. Thank you. Thanks so much, Sarah. It's great to be here with you. Yeah, thanks so much for joining me. So perhaps we can just talk a little bit about that. I love that that you combine conventional medicine and work with that and with your complementary medicine practices. So how does that generally work for clients? Because I imagine with, 
you know, things like period pain, which we're going to talk about today, that might come into play. So how do you, how do you work with clients around that? Yeah, great question. I think one of the most important things is just to be able to give ourselves permission to look at all the options available. So whether that's natural approach or whether that's a conventional medicine approach, it just means that we've got more options to choose from. doesn't mean one is more better or, or more, um, more appropriate necessarily or that you should have one over the other. It just gives a person a choice over what might be best for them. And everyone's, per, everyone's body is completely different So, and every situation is different. So it's, it's quite common for having one case come in and you might find natural medicines is not as effective in supporting and so therefore you go for conventional medicine versus or vice versa. So really it's, it's that openness to, to exploring the options that's best for everyone. That's great, great approach because, uh, you know, like you say, everyone's situation is different and two people can present with maybe exactly the same or, you know, seemingly exactly the same presentation, but their life, their situation and everything could be completely, will be completely different. So um, spot on. Yeah. Yeah. So important. Yeah. I suppose also um, because I've got a background in the biochemistry and I have an understanding, I've done a little bit of pharmacology studies as well. So I have an understanding of aspects of that, the conventional medicine, which gives me permission to be able to help clients, if you like, understand some of those things. Because some people come in and they're scared of using conventional medicine. They don't want to or they don't have their misunderstandings about it or reservations around it. And I suppose one of the things that I've been able to help some clients with is just be able to understand what the drugs do and how they work, which means that then they're, they're better informed to be able to make their own decisions whether they use them or not. And that's a huge weight off a lot of people's shoulders, if you like, to be able to know, hang on, this is okay, or that's okay, or this is where I can choose. Mm. Yeah, so, so, so important. And, and that's what I find uh, with the pill, which is what I talk a lot about with women in, in the clinic is that we just need to be informed and and often women are not informed about how they work and what they're doing and often that will influence their choice in in whether they take the medication or not you know if they if they know how it works how it's going to impact their body um or they take it knowing you know what the impacts are going to be and they can look out for those things yeah no, spot on. And and perhaps not so much in relation to periods as such, but you can have certain conditions like urinary tract infections where people come into my clinic and say, I've got a urinary tract infection or and I need some herbal remedies for it. And I'll say, no, go to the hospital, get some antibiotics straight away, especially if they're bleeding or if they're in severe pain, because that's a time where it's it can evolve so quickly as an infection that it can end up doing permanent damage to kidneys. And so you don't want to be taking the time to use some herbal remedies or you can use them in conjunction with the antibiotics, but you wouldn't want to use them alone because there's too many risks involved. So in some cases, I actually err on the side of conventional medicine rather than going only just with, with um, alternative things. And, you know, urinary tract infections are common in, in women in perimenopause and menopause and those kinds of things. So you need to be able to work with these things, you know, hand in hand. Absolutely. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, so let's get on to the topic of period pain. So I gather that you would you would see a lot of women in clinic uh, who have, you know, varying levels of period pain, probably across the board, you know, from 
maybe mild to all the way to a condition called endometriosis, which is a completely different thing. But yeah, what's your experience of that in the clinic? Yeah, it's that's a it's it's very broad and very varied. Some people come in and they're handling their periods fine. Some people don't seem to have any symptoms, or others, as you're saying, very extreme. But what I find important to bust as well, and this is sort of what um, is a, is a common um, sort of topic, I suppose, to to um, between us, anyways, of what we're talking about is the things of what we tend to normalize. So a lot of women will normalize period pain. So they'll go, oh, yeah, my periods are normal. And so I always ask them, what do you mean by normal? Tell me how much you're bleeding. What is the flow? How many, how many pads or tampons are you going through in a day? And how is the pain? Do you have to take painkillers? And some people, when they say, oh, it's normal, for them, normal means taking several painkillers a day, maybe staying home for the day because they can't go to work. It's you know too painful for them to go to work anyways or debilitating in some way. So it's really important to ask, what is your normal? What does normal mean to you? Because then you get the details of how much it actually affects someone's life on a day-to-day basis. Exactly. That's, yeah, so important because... Someone's normal, like we were talking about in um, the podcast with Elodie, and I can't remember which number that is right off the top of my head now, but uh, we'll put it in the show notes for those who are listening and interested. But we talked a lot about, you know, someone's normal in period pain in that episode. And it's true because women just get sort of passed down generation to generation where you know, their mum had really bad period pain and she has really bad period pain and mum's just like, well, this is just the way it is, you know, and so we just kind of get used to, um, you know, and and it seems to be across the board that that women have accepted this level of pain around their periods um, to be normal and often often it can be you hear women talking about how it's brushed off sometimes at their uh, medical appointments and uh, it can, or, or they're just offered the pill. So they're offered not much yes. sort of insight into what might be going on when they have period pain and when it is severe. And, you know, I am the same when I talk to women about um, asking about the pain, how much does it actually impact their day-to-day life? And if they do take painkillers, does it actually work? For a start, yeah. for, some, for some women, it doesn't even touch the sides and um, they're in, you know, excruciating severe pain every month having to take days off work and that's really, you know, getting into impacting their day-to-day life on several days every month and that's a big deal. Yeah. That's huge, yeah. And I had one um, bit more of a perhaps perhaps a bit more extreme case or example to share is I had one 16-year-old come to me in clinic and um, she wasn't coming to me because of her periods but when we did talk about the periods and I said how are your periods she said oh normal and I said what's normal for you and she said I spend two nights out of the mountain out of the night sleeping in a bathtub because her vomiting and the, the the flow is so heavy and the pain is so severe that she sleeps in the bathtub for two nights out of the month. And I thought, gosh, and she's thought that was normal for her. So that was a big thing to talk to her about that and say, hang on a tick, that's not normal. We need to start doing something about that and we need to start looking at why that's actually happening so strongly for you. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. that's huge. 
It, it is. And to think that, you know, as a 16-year-old, you know, I know when I was, you know, growing up and my periods were starting, it was all so new and it was all, you feel very vulnerable. You're not sure who you can t- talk to about that. And you might make a mention of some of it to your friends, but if you've got heavier periods than someone else, they'll, they, it's, it's not always a topic that's easy to talk about because people, girls don't always, they're, they're a bit embarrassed sometimes about it um, instead of just not making it a taboo subject, but opening up about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, gosh, so great if we, you know, had the, uh, I guess, um, what's the word? There's a support <laughs> as well. It's a support in the network around us as women yeah. where we can actually talk about these things. Exactly, yeah. If we had yeah. that kind of foundation where that was that was normal, you know, yeah. how, how would that be? That would be pretty yeah. amazing. Spot on. But, yeah, so, for example, with this particular client, we started looking together then at nutrition and supplements and things like that because those do play key roles. Sometimes as women we have a particular body that may have, I mean, everyone's got this in a way. We've got strengths in certain areas, but then we've got what I call areas that might need a little bit of extra support. And so some women who might have a little bit more of that period pain, it's the body signaling in a way. The way I like to look at it is the body signaling, hang on, pay attention to this part. There's something going on here. We need extra support in this area. So that's how I work with it. Yeah, great. And that makes sense. And so you would distinguish too, um, and I think it's important for us to distinguish between period pain and endometriosis, which is period pain is something that, as we said, is a common thing that women experience, um, even though it's not, uh, I guess, normal and natural, but it is um, something that a lot of women do experience. So we've got that, which is what we're talking about today. And then Mm -hmm. we've got, and generally, I mean, I don't know what your experience is, but I find that um, because I send a lot of people to you, you know, to, to get that kind of support with nutrition and supplements and things like that. So I find that, you know, when women have period pain, um, that is not to the extent of what we would call endometriosis, which is a separate thing, because that's a, you know, an, a, um, involves the immune system and it involves the whole body. So which generally there would be more, severe pain there might be other things going on that might be combined with that kind of pain because of the lesions and where they're where they are in the pelvic region and other organs that they might be impacting so there's that and then there's period pain but I find that with period pain if women uh, if painkillers work for a start if they uh, um, change some things in their diet and their lifestyle, then generally period pain can sort of resolve quite quickly. Um, yes. But if it's endometriosis, like that's kind of a distinction between, you know, how you can sometimes tell if it is more sort of on the side of endometriosis or if it's actual period pain. Do you find that in clinic as yeah. well? Yeah, spot on. Well said. And that's so beautifully described because there is a distinction between the two. I mean, the dietary changes and the supplements are still our foundation or particularly the diet is our foundation anyway. So regardless of whether it is just period pain, so to speak, or more severe conditions such as endometriosis, the foundation is still key. It doesn't matter whether which one you have. But what I hear you saying is that it, with with the first one, with the period pain, it's like when you got that foundation in place, it usually resolves 
resolves a lot of those issues, whereas the endometriosis requires a little bit more work to be able to support it with. And that's spot on because there is so much we can put in place in terms of, you know, coming to a dietary aspect and dietary foundation. There's, there's a lot of things that people are already putting in place, which are fantastic, but then there's tweaks to the diet that can be done to really alleviate and support the body. So, yeah, so we can probably go right into the nitty-gritty of that. Yeah, let's do it. Yes. So even starting with some really simple things, you know, there's a couple of really interesting ones to explore, but essentially even on a basis of, you know, and just like, you know, just the aspect of detoxification and making sure you drink enough water, the body needs the water. So staying hydrated is already going to help with the whole process. Then there's going to be simple things that we know already from a logical perspective or most people probably would know, but it's the sugar consumption as well. So sugar is something that can actually create a lot of acidity in the body. And when it creates acidity in the body, it actually contributes to what's called inflammation. And inflammation is one of the root drivers of of pain, if you like. So if we're going to bring what we want to do essentially is any kind of inflammation or inflammatory pathways in the body, we want to try to reduce them, bring them down as much as possible and and sort of calm down those pathways. And so sugar is one of those things that if we can minimize that in the diet as much as possible, then we're going to automatically help bring down those inflammatory markers as well in the the blood and in the body. And and sugar is an interesting one because we might think, oh, well, I don't take a bag full of sugar and spoon it into my mouth. So it's it's fine. I don't have that as an issue. But sugar can come in a lot of forms. The obvious forms of, you know, your your sweeteners and and you know feeding muffins and treats and sugary things like, you know, lollies and chocolates. But it also comes fruit is a form of sugar as well. And not to say people shouldn't eat fruit because it's got obviously beautiful benefits in terms of the fiber, probiotics, oh, sorry, prebiotics, but also in terms of the vitamins and everything else that it contains. So I'm not saying not to eat fruit, but there's some people who eat a lot of fruit and that can then really, really increase the sugar load in the body. And there's your other forms of of sugar that are basically hidden sugars, which are more in the form of things like your um, refined grains. So if a grain has been milled into flour and then used to bake a bread or pizza base or pasta, all those, those actually become what are called hidden sugars because the grain being milled into flour means it's almost like it's pre-digested already which means that once it's baked into, say, a piece of bread or a slice of toast and you eat that toast, then that toast is already, um, when you chew it, you break it down further. And then when you swallow it, by the time you swallow it, it's already turned into sugar in your body, which is something we don't consider. We don't Mm -hmm. think of bread as being a hidden sugar. Mm-hmm. But it is the same with pasta, pastries, you know, and pizza and all those things. So they're what I call hidden sugars. So minimizing on those can make a huge difference in a person's, you know, day-to-day experience or monthly experience in terms of period pain. It's so great to talk about sugar because, you know, it's it's so pervasive and it's everywhere. I mean, it's in sauces, it's in everything. <laughs> yes, <laughs> Drinks, exactly. Sauces. Yeah. Um, yeah. We don't realize how much, you know, how much you consume, you know, without paying attention and actually looking at, you know, labels and things like that. But what you've just said there is fantastic because we, I mean, you wouldn't think that, would you? You know, if you're thinking you're having some, um, I don't know, bread that's made of rice flour, 
you would mm. think that that's fantastic. Yeah, that's right. Well, you're going gluten-free bread and so you're thinking, great, that'll be a healthy version and then you end up having rice flour, which actually, yeah, boosts your sugar levels quite quickly as well. Spot on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's it. So that's an interesting area, obviously, to look at in terms of the sugar load that will the way it works and literally how it actually goes in and will increase inflammation in the body instantly. And so what's beautiful about this, we're actually talking about this in terms of period pain, but a lot of these things can be applied to any kind of chronic inflammatory conditions. So there's a presentation I did a few years ago around inflammation and living with chronic pain. And, uh, you know, there's a huge amount of overlap in which foods are actually going to contributing to that. No one food is the cause of the pain, but it's usually a contributing factor. So making those little shifts might feel like they're small things, but they actually do. They add up very quickly and they're no longer that small and they can make a big difference for a lot of people. Yeah. Great. So sugar, sugar is Key one. number one. Yeah. Absolutely. And there's two other, I mean, obviously there's, you want to bump up your vegetable intake so that you've got your vitamins and minerals and your fibers and things like that from there as well. Um, And on that note, one of the reasons why we want to do that period pain can obviously come from um, the hormonal imbalances. And sometimes it can be because of high estrogens that we can have problems like that. So high estrogen levels and, and low progesterone levels can create symptoms with the period that can be quite disturbing and, and can throw off the body hugely. So what they've done is research and what they've found is that there's ways for the digestive tract to actually get rid of excess estrogens. And there's what's called an enterohepatic circulation all that means is it's a circulation of estrogen that goes from the the blood basically to the guts from the guts to the liver and the blood and back into the guts and it sort of circulates around like that so we usually what with the body the body's purpose of doing that is that if you've got too much estrogens in the body the body can go hey we've got too much let's throw them back in the gut so we can just poo them out But the problem is that if our gut bacteria are not the right kind, and if we're not producing, we don't have the right kind of environment in the digestive tract, then what happens is instead of just getting rid of the excess estrogens, we just reabsorb them again. So you're back to the same problem. It's like a recycling plant that goes a bit wrong and starts taking back again the same things it's pumped out. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, this can cause huge issues, not just uh, with so many things around reproductive health um yes yeah including period pain that's right yeah so that's that's how you know the coming back to the fruit and veg that's how it's important because the fruit and veg give us the fiber and Mm. they're the ones that contain what is called the prebiotic which will help the good bacteria to grow in your digestive tract and populate that so that the good bacteria can then help with that getting rid of the excess estrogens and they produce butyrate and other things like that that will actually support with with the whole environment of the digestive tract to be balanced so that you know what you're getting rid of and know what you need to keep so yeah that's why just fruit and vegetables you know especially vegetables green vegetables if you bump that up increase your green vegetable intake then that's that's already going to support with basic in you know anti-inflammatory and balancing of hormones and things like that great so helping to move that excess estrogen out of the body so it's not recirculating yeah Exactly. Yeah. So that's how fruit and veg, you know, things like that can be a simple way of just supporting as an anti-inflammatory and, and supporting with period pain. And then there's the two other key ones as well that I like to look at, which is, 
I've left them last, not because I felt that they were least important. In fact, I almost put them as being most important, but it's such a huge area to explore that it's good to get the other ones first nominated so we know, hang on, drink your water, bump up your green vegetables, make sure you're eating less sugar. And then the next thing what I look at definitely is looking at with some two key ingredients, which is gluten and dairy. Now, they're ones that are rampant in our society. We eat huge amounts of gluten. Well, just to clarify, gluten is um, basically a protein molecule that's found inside uh, a lot of grains, such as wheat, barley, um, spelt, you know, and, and the list goes on, kamut, you know, all of those. So it's, a, it's, a, it's also found in oats, and oats has its own form of gluten, which essentially has a similar effect to wheat gluten. Um, but, yeah, so you've got gluten, which plays a huge role in inflammation and also dairy equally so so they're both um both food components if you like that need to be explored separately um, because of their impact on the body and how how strong it can be so how do how do they affect so it's they increase the inflammation in the body is that yeah correct so it's interesting because when you go to the research and look at things there's a lot of controversy around this there is information that says, no, 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 for instance, with dairy, it'll say, no, 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 a lot of dairy can, can reduce inflammation in certain conditions. And then obviously there's the allergic component, components too. So if someone's allergic or intolerant, it can actually create issue and increase inflammatory markers. So we've got to make a clear distinction here on if someone's actually allergic to dairy, then that's, or gluten or anything else, it's a completely different ballgame that we're dealing with. And they do need to absolutely avoid it because of the allergy aspect and that'll trigger inflammation in the body anyways but when we're dealing with a person who's non-allergic you can still get the um the immune system responding or reacting to the dairy in a way that that can create problems for the whole body later on down the track so one of the things in terms of in terms of say dairy Dairy is, um, is a, it's, it's, well, when we talk about dairy, just to clarify, we're talking about dairy from an animal origin. So whether that's cow's milk, whether that's goat's milk, sheep's milk, or cheese, butter, any of those, yogurt included, all those. Um, with, with any of those, they will contain, contain ingredients, either the lactose, I'm sorry, lactose, yeah, which is the sugar, or it can co contain the proteins as well from the dairy. So both of those can create issues in the body. The one that we're more concerned about when it comes to an immune reaction or inflammation is the protein aspect itself. So going for a low lactose milk is not going to make a difference in terms of that. It might make it easier to digest for some people, but we're not even even talking so much about digestive aspects here. We're talking more about the, the downstream effects of consuming those foods. And when you absorb those into the blood and into your digestive, through your digestive tract, into your blood and into your body, what do those components then do down the track in the body? Does that make sense? Absolutely. It absolutely makes sense. And it's, um, it's so prevalent, like I find that, and, and it's really effective too. So it's, I find that women who do have period pain often will be having a lot of dairy. And I find that as soon as they do cut that out, even if it's just dairy, then they tend to have quite significant changes that are happening um, in their body pretty much very, very, very quickly. Yeah, spot on. 
spot on. It's it's um it's the proteins in the dairy which basically trigger the release of certain um, components in the in the digestive tract. And when they're broken down, that releases certain components that can then that are then absorbed into the body. So um, these these um, components that are then absorbed into the body uh, are what's called caseomorphines. So caseomorphines, if you look at the word itself, there's caseo, which comes from the milk, and the morphine, which is morphine. Like it's it, you'll get the you'll understand what it where it comes from and why it's it's labeled that way. But what happens is essentially as we absorb this. Um, molecule, if you like, it's able to pass through the blood brain barrier and go directly into the brain. And so that can then attach onto receptors. So we've actually got the human brain actually has what's called caseomorphine receptors. So they've got receptors, we've got brain has receptors that they, this molecule can then attach to, and it has a similar effect on the brain as morphine does. So it affects your nervous system, how it functions. It um, impacts on metabolic pathways and neuro, neuro, neurotransmitter pathways so that they can actually create a dependency and a kind of an addictive kind of feeling as well. So it's really fascinating to feel how that can happen. That, that is fascinating because I am definitely one who was addicted to dairy. Wow. <laughs> when I was younger, I just had this like extreme kind of addiction it was an addiction I won't say kind of it was an addiction to to milk like I just every morning and if someone if someone had used all the milk and I woke up and there was no milk in the fridge I would like lose it you'd get really cranky (laughs) yes it's the withdrawal it's the withdrawal symptoms it's no different to coming detoxifying off a drug or other things like that it's it it can really it can really play with a person but what it does is it then exposes how that molecule actually creates this pathway in your body where a dependent pathway in the body and says i cannot function normally without having this in my system yeah so what it does is it dulls out certain parts of you so it creates this sort of focus where you need to have that and then at the same time there's other downstream effects where it actually increases inflammatory pathways so that's where it becomes a problem particularly when it comes to women's health and particularly when it comes to sort of period pain and things like that yeah Yeah. so it's one of the most effective in terms of you know treatment but can be one of the hardest things for for women to well stop yeah yeah well said. And and look, sometimes there is a bit of negotiating I do with my clients, depending on how severe their situation is. And look, I tell them, look, it's, it's very clear that if you go completely 100% dairy free and cut out your, your milk and your, you know, your butter and your cheese in particular and yogurt and all those, if you go 100% dairy free, the results will be faster in terms of showing themselves but sometimes it's too hard for people to do that and it's okay to negotiate it's okay to go well why don't you hang on to the cheese still and cut out the other things for now and then gradually win yourself off that or finish off what you have in your pantry and fridge and then when that's finished transition gradually over to the you know the dairy-free versions and thank goodness we've got a lot of dairy-free versions available to us these days yeah so what would you what would you recommend because you know this is something that you know someone listening to this might be going well what else is there 
Yeah, absolutely. Great question. So in terms of milks, um, you know, it's the reality is you can't think of it as a replacement in terms of going, well, I want it to taste the same and I want it to have the same effect in my body in terms of, you know, the satisfaction that you get from it. You can't really, you, nothing will replace it completely. But what you can see it with is a, as an alternative. See it as an alternative that's going to be more supportive for your body than the original version, if you like. And so then it doesn't mean that you're trying to like, it's like when someone's coming off coffee and they try to, the coffee alternative alternatives and they go gosh this doesn't taste like coffee so give yourself a little space to get used to the flavors and the tastes and and um and sometimes it takes a couple of goes before you might you know forget what the original thing tasted like so that you're okay with taking on the alternative but in terms of milks you've got all the nut milks which are beautiful to play with almond milk you know you could go cashew milk you could go macadamia milk there's a lot of different nut milks out there to choose from almonds probably the most common one to go with and then you've got obviously soy milk, which is an option as well for people too to use. Some people have allergies to soy or to nuts. So obviously in those cases, you don't want to be very careful about that. Um, and then you've obviously got your coconut milk as well. So they're the three main ones that people would opt for in terms of playing with dairy-free versions of milks. Then you've got things like your butter. There are dairy-free versions that you can go for. Things like your Nutilex, for instance. I'm not sure if everyone's heard of Nutilex, but most of them, particularly in Australia, we can find good, good um, you know, dairy alternative versions of spreads or butters. So Nutilex is one option to go for. In terms of the dairy-free cheeses, most of the supermarkets these days have a bit of a selection. It's worth looking at the ingredients, though, just make sure that there's nothing that you're going to react to because some people can be sensitive to salicylates or, you know, preservatives and all of that. And a lot of them do have, you know, natural food ingredients, but they do have some preservatives and other things in there. Sorry to come back to natural food ingredients. Of course, they've got natural food ingredients. I meant natural food ingredients that people can be sometimes reactive to, you know, such as salicylates. But yeah, so having a look at what's existing in your supermarket shelving, there's some bio cheeses, which are basically coconut cheeses that you can opt for. They do also things like your coconut feta. They do cream cheeses, which are soy-based or tofu-based. So there's a lot of options out there to look at. And as I said, when you first start, you might not like the taste of it. Give yourself a little bit of a break, then come back to it and try it out again. And you might find your taste buds get adjusted, basically. And they do. They often do adjust. So once, you're, once you've detoxed off the dairy, so to speak, your taste buds will be different. And you'll go back to some foods you thought weren't that great. And you'll go, hang on a tick. These taste completely different now, which is fascinating. Yeah. Great. So be persistent. <laughs> Yeah, yeah yeah and it's giving yourself permission if you don't like it don't force it you know exactly. it's just let it go just leave it out for now come back to it later if you feel to awesome great so then do you have anything more to add on dairy or should we move over to gluten just in terms of the dairy, I might want to say as well that when people are cutting out dairy, there's there's such a push in our society that we get our calcium from dairy. And, and it's interesting because the calcium in dairy is actually uh, what's called a calcium carbonate form. And it's one that's far more difficult to absorb by the body. Calcium carbonate is really difficult for the human body to absorb. So 
it's it's bound if you like if you look at the biochemistry of it it's bound to the calcium is bound to a carbonate molecule which is really difficult to break them apart and actually take into the body and utilize and so there's other forms of calcium which are far more easy to absorb and you know whether that's calcium citrate forms or or some plant forms of calcium which are easier to absorb as well so in that regard, if you're cutting out dairy and definitely bringing in other foods that are rich in calcium, you're not risking going low in calcium. Yeah, you can get it, absolutely can get it in really good amounts from non-dairy sources. Mm, I'm so pleased you brought that up because that, mm. that is a question that, that I get often about, um, you know, when talking about taking dairy out is well what's going to happen to my calcium i'm always so saturated with that idea yeah. that calcium is our only and best source of calcium so, yeah correct sorry, dairy, dairy, yeah. dairy. Say, yeah. yeah that's right yeah no spot mm-hmm. on and and look you know sometimes some of the dairy free dairies <laughs> so the non-animal dairy dairies are actually fortified in calcium and some aren't so you can't necessarily rely on them as being a source of calcium but good sources of calcium include things like your nuts and seeds, but also things like your green vegetables, things like your, you know, even your broccoli, your bok choy, a lot of those are actually quite high in minerals like calcium. Seaweed is also really high in calcium. You've got things like your sesame seeds, tahini, you know, a lot of those are rich in calcium. Plus, if you eat fish and particularly if you're eating canned fish like canned salmon, then leave the bones in there. The bones are often quite soft at that point. And if you blend them through or crush them through, you won't notice them in the meal. And so they're actually, the bones are actually a fantastic source of calcium as well for the body to use. So lots of sources. And everything that you just mentioned there, you know, they're great sources of omega-3 fatty acids. Is that correct? Yes. Spot on. And they actually help with the good type, the good prostaglandins. You know, we have exactly we have our prostaglandin two, I think, that is the one that is the that causes the pain and inflammation. Inflammation. That's right. And then the other two that are the natural painkillers. You know, if we we're actually supporting our body with those kinds of foods, we're actually increasing um, our body's ability to be able to combat any pain that might be there that's beautiful because what you shared is you've talked about basically the inflammatory pathways so in the body we have this metabolic system we've got an inflammatory pathway where certain foods can come in and trigger and push the pathway towards one direction or the other direction and so if you're going down one direction it causes inflammation it's called pro-inflammatory pathway and if you push certain foods will push in the opposite direction which is the anti-inflammatory pathway and you get produced what's called the prostaglandins which are basically chemical mediators that will then create either an inflammatory response or an anti-inflammatory response in the body and the prostaglandins can be produced there it's an amazing thing because the body wants and needs to be able to use the prostaglandins so if you got say a site of injury something an area gets hurt or damaged in one part then prostaglandins get produced in that site of injury and they cause vasodilation and and call in immune cells and all that kind of stuff to do what they need to do in the area And so prostaglandins are important in the body. But what you were talking about here is which types of prostaglandins can contribute to period pain and which ones would be better if we can increase the other side. And that's where foods like your omega-3s from fish oils and fish consuming fish and things like that, it actually helps to go down the anti-inflammatory route, which is what we want. Yeah. Fantastic. Great. 
so many great tips here. Yeah, um, beautiful. Yeah. Okay, now now we move on to gluten. Yes, yeah. beautiful. So gluten is another key one which also does contribute hugely to inflammation. Now, I remember when I was doing presenting my grand rounds for naturopathy, at the end of our course we had to pick a topic that we researched and, and then presented on to an audience. Of, um, we had an auditorium and we presented on it with slides and, and showed a little bit of a recap of all the research around a particular topic. And at that time, I was particularly interested in investigating gluten. I was interested in dairy as well, but my key focus was just looking at gluten alone is just huge in terms of the volume of, of data and research that's out there to look at. And what's very interesting is, once again, like with dairy, there's a lot of controversial information. But I was particularly interested in looking at the stuff that was showing, okay, how does gluten impact in a negative way in the body? And I was looking through all the research and some of the things that I came across was not so much in terms of focusing on period pain as such, this is more in a general approach, but what I found was that there was one particular article or research article that I looked into that had highlighted some of the research in the, research in, in the literature and had said that, talked about the fact that they'd, they'd studied the fact that I think it was close to 120 illnesses and diseases that significantly reduced in symptom picture simply by removing gluten from the diet. So you had all these conditions, inflammatory conditions. Once again, a reminder, if there is a condition in the body, some things, you know, an illness or something, it involves inflammation always. And so if you've got inflammation present, you want to look at where is that inflammation, what's driving that inflammation. So what they found is there's over 120 illnesses and diseases. If they took gluten out of the diet, temporarily even, just for a short term, then a lot of those symptom pictures would reduce in severity and some of them would go away completely. And with some of these conditions, they could reduce the medications they were giving to them. Now, to me, that was astounding. I was just looking at that going, why don't we do that as a first-line intervention? Why don't we just first-line take gluten out of the diet, see whether that improves the picture or not. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And do you do that with your clients? Is that something that, you know, along with dairy um, or separately, you know, something is gluten, something for period pain that you will take out and see and notice yeah. results? Yeah. Absolutely. Look, my first focus is always the gluten and it depends on the client as well. You know, if someone's finding it very difficult and new to have to cut out even just dairy, then I'll say, look, we'll just start off with the dairy, hang on to the gluten now, and then we gradually support them through cutting out the gluten. I mean, the most worst thing you can do is, is if you go to someone and they say, you need to cut out dairy, you need to cut out gluten, off you go, and you don't have the practical tools on how to do it. That just leaves you in limbo and makes you panic and go into overwhelm. So I always step people through them and I work with them in terms of where they're at and which sections they're ready to take on board and support them through the next phases. So sometimes I get clients who've experimented with paleo diets or, you know, various different FODMAPs, diets, other things. So they've already got an understanding of how to play with their diet and they're not so scared to give things a try. And with people who've done things like that, I'll say, right, how do you feel about cutting out gluten and dairy? We'll just see how you go. 
And oftentimes it's actually the most beneficial and the fastest way to get results is by cutting both the gluten and the dairy out because both of those will really dramatically reduce the inflammatory markers in the body. And then oftentimes it's like, great, we don't actually need to use supplements in some cases, which is my preference. Because mm, sometimes, you know, you might go to a, a naturopath or a nutritionist and uh, you get overloaded, you know, with lots of different supplements and that can sometimes um, be overwhelming in itself. Correct. Expensive and overwhelming. And it's kind yeah. of, I joke about it sometimes in terms of you walking around like rattling like an apothecary, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> taking exactly. all those pills. <laughs> yeah. I mean, look, there's definitely a time when it's warranted. The body might need to be built up. You know, you might have nutrient depletions and they definitely need to be supported. You know, sometimes food is not enough to bring build up those levels. So supplements play a role. They are needed at times. But, you know, my approach is if we can do it with food, let's go down that track and at least use that as a foundation even if we need to bring supplements in temporarily to build the levels up. Yeah. And that's great because it actually it actually supports someone to adjust their lifestyle, which is actually what's yes. needed. So if you're just taking supplements, you're kind of just not being asked to, you know, sort of shift and adjust part of the way that you're living and food is integral in that, isn't it? The way we Spot prepare on. it, what we choose, what we eat, when we eat, how we eat. <laughs> All yeah. of that is um, a huge part of, you know, our health and well-being. Spot on. And if you're using sort of so-called natural remedies, it becomes in for, you know, just to alleviate pain and not really deal with the actual core issues going on. It becomes what I call green medicine. So it's no different to taking a painkiller. And I'm not saying you can't do it. Of course, if you're in pain or things need to be adjusted, by all means, let's do that. But don't let's become dependent on it. Don't, yeah. don't become dependent and feel that you can't continue if you don't have that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. There mm. is one standout um, supplement that I have read a study on where they um, gave, I think it was teenagers, and I think it was actually here in Australia, where they gave teenagers zinc. Uh, and do you know this one where they gave them zinc and then just zinc? And then the other group had uh, the contraceptive pill and they found that the pain was the, the relief of the pain was the same in both. Yes, it's amazing. Zinc is one of my favorite supplements. And I'm glad you've mentioned it. It's one of my favorite supplements to work with when it comes to any form of period pain, because it actually works as an analgesic or painkiller. It's anti-inflammatory and analgesic, yeah, which is incredible. And it's a nutrient that's often depleted, particularly in teenagers. We're growing so fast at that stage in our lives. We deplete zinc very quickly. Zinc is required by the thyroid to function properly. It's required by the, the liver to process the hormones as well. It's required for, you know, your hormone pathways. It's something that's required in so many areas that because the body's growing so quickly and everything's developing so fast, it's almost like at that time you need extra amounts of zinc. And, you know, something which I'm not against vegetarian diets or vegan diets, not at all, but a lot of those make it harder for the body to get zinc, which means that a lot of um, when you get teenagers who go through that phase where they go, oh, I want to go vegetarian or vegan, which I understand. But when they go at particularly at that phase in their life when their body is growing very quickly, preparing for adulthood, you know, and that's where your nutrient demands are greater than to have that double whammy of 
not having the access to the zinc plus the extra growth in there and preparation can make it even more accentuate even more the um, the period pain and problems that can come from hormonal imbalances as well. That's great to know. You know, that's really great to know in terms of just the nutritional needs around um, that time in a young woman's life and because there's so many changes that are going on and just to have that understanding of that the body actually requires, you know, more nutritional support at that time and how how your lifestyle can impact that. That's a whole other conversation in itself, I think. Exactly, exactly. Well said. Yeah. And to come back just to the gluten as well, I wanted to also mention similar to the dairy, how I mentioned that dairy has the caseomorphine, um, you know, molecules that are released and cross the blood brain barrier. Gluten also has, um, or foods containing gluten, gluten will have a similar impact as well in terms of having what's called gluteomorphine that passes on to the, through the blood brain barrier and has exactly the similar same effect as, you know, binding to the receptors the morphine receptors that we have with the gluteomorphine receptors and then having that same addictive um, quality and addictive sort of effect on the body too so there's a detox process when you're coming off dairy and when you're cutting off gluten you need to give yourself a little bit of understanding and space because you can get a bit cranky and and it can be hard to do it makes so much sense doesn't it because you know we often refer to those kinds of foods as comfort food um, yes. you know, it's like what we, what we use when we're not feeling great <laughs> yeah. and we just want to sort of, you know, feel a bit more dense and feel a bit more like, you know, exactly bury, bury whatever is going on in, in the bowl of ice cream or, um, that's that right. Piece of bread and butter. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> spot on, spot on. That's it. But yeah, so definitely, I mean, cutting, those are two main foods that I would tend to sort of cut back on at least, if not cut out completely to support. And sometimes I've had, you know, just recently had one client severe period pain um, and we just got her to begin with our focus was gluten and dairy free diet and getting her on zinc. And within one cycle, she came back and she couldn't believe the difference. Like she said, I can go to work now in those days and I don't even need to take painkillers. She was over the moon. And then she said what was interesting was that she she then said that there was a couple of days where she went out and she was went out to friends' places and ended up having some pizza and things that had gluten in it. And she said that, you know, she'd actually had her cycle about a week later and it was back to square one again. So she could feel the impact. And that's what I love about it. There's nothing wrong with going back and eating foods that, you know, can be creating the issue because then you get to feel what it actually impacts, how it impacts and what it does in your body. So, yeah, it's great, isn't it? Because then you have more clarity around, okay, well, this is exactly how it's working. When you're, when you're having it all the time, it's, um, it just becomes normal. But then when you yeah. have that difference and you can feel um, the impact, then it gives you much more incentive and motivation to, to make choices that are going to eliminate that. Yeah, great. And I actually talk about what's called a baseline diet for people. So what I call by a baseline diet is let's say someone comes to see me and we go, right, your baseline diet is going to be gluten-free, dairy-free and more vegetables. Could be that simple. Yeah, and low sugar, say. So that means that that is basically a diet that they can use, that they know they can always come back to if things go AWOL or if they go, you know, something goes wrong. So if they get a period pain, okay, come back to that as a diet. Stay with that for a while, see if that stabilizes things. If it does, great. And then obviously we all deviate a bit from that. So then we can deviate, we get to feel the impacts, but then we go, all right, hang on a tick. I know I can come back to my baseline diet, which will support me. 
And it's that simple. That's beautiful. That's great. It's so important when it comes to food to keep it simple because um, yes. food can be complicated. <laughs> we can have complicated relationships with food. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. So this has been amazing. And I know, you know, there's going to be a lot of people out there who are um, probably wanting to either get in touch with you or wanting to find out more and all of that. So I'm going to have all of your details in the show notes so that they can do that if that if they would like to. Absolutely. And uh, let just just perhaps share with everyone your business. Can you share with everyone your business and your maybe Instagram page? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my um, my business name is called L'Alchimiste. So it comes from the French word alchemist, um, and so it's written L apostrophe A L C H I M I S T E. And so we basically I've been practicing. Well, under that banner, I've been practicing probably about six years now, um, but have been absolutely working with naturopathy for for quite a number of years now and, and working around that. But I think one of the key areas, even though I would say I'm not necessarily specialized in women's health, because women are the ones that tends to seek most support, it has become a specialization in women's health because of that by default, not because I chose that, because it actually just is. Most women are the ones that are proactive and wanting to get some support. And I love that. So I still work with a lot of men when they need the support too. Um, but yeah, women are the ones that are most forthcoming with that. And I really enjoy working around that. And one thing that I do, as I've shared with you here now, one of the backgrounds and one of the areas I specialize in is, is the, you know, food, food um, intolerances and and um, sensitivities like particularly around gluten and dairy and and supporting the diet and my approach tends to be as i said get the foundational aspects right first in terms of the diet and definitely bring in supplements if we need to but don't make the focus about the supplements it's got to be the way we live every day that if we're the way we live is what's making us sick then let's change the way we live rather than bringing a band-aid solution to the to the play amazing that's fantastic. So I will have all of those in the show notes and links there so that people can access easily. Um, yeah. But just to to wrap up, and I think you probably just did it just then, gave us a little summary, but just in terms of period pain, is for someone who has who is overwhelmed with period pain um, and does not know where to start in terms of their food and nutrition, what would you say would be their first step? You know, what would be the first step that they could take? Yeah, first step is I would start looking at animal sources of dairy and minimizing or cutting those out as much as possible, looking into alternatives. The second thing I would do is also minimizing on sugar. And that includes the hidden sugars, like we said, the bread, the pizza, the pasta, in addition to any sweet treats, cakes, and those kinds of things. And as I said, it can be a process to wean yourself off that as well. And then once you've done that, then I'd also be looking at gluten as an aspect as well, bumping up your green vegetable intake, and then zinc. Zinc can be picked up from most pharmacies. Even if that's the only thing you take, just get onto some zinc as well. Amazing. That's a very, very simple formula. We'll put that little formula in, in the show notes as well. Um, Henrietta, thank you so much. I absolutely love your your incredible wealth of wisdom and knowledge that you have on on this topic of all things nutrition and complementary medicine. It's fantastic to have your support. So thank you very much for coming on the show. 
Thank you. And thank you, Sarah. It's been always lovely to work with you. And and as a note as well, you know, obviously for those who are interested, I'm I'm based in Ballina, Northern New South Wales, but I do Zoom consults, you know, so there's no problem whatsoever with connecting with people if you're further away. So, yeah. And I'm in Melbourne yeah. and I often yeah. will refer clients to to you. So that's always been such a huge support. It's beautiful collaboration. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. So thank you so much, Sarah. This is beautiful. Thanks, Henrietta. You're listening to Follow Your Flow podcast with Sarah Harris. Subscribe on iTunes, follow us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter and get in touch. All details on www.followyourflow.com.au slash podcast.